So let me ask you a question as we get started here this morning. The question would be this. Uh, what is it that makes for a good life? What makes for a good life? What is it that it means? So what does it mean to be well off? Now this has been said that this is one of the great questions that everybody, whether they realize it or not, is trying to answer in their life. When you get to the end of your life and you look back on it, how will you determine whether or not that was a good life? Whether, when you look at the lives of others, what is the, the criteria that you look at and that makes you say, that was a good life, or that is a good life, or, or maybe it's not? You know, the whole world was shocked a few weeks ago when one of our most uh, beloved, most talented, most accomplished public figures died. You, you know probably who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Robin Williams. I remember where I was when I found out that he had died. I was at the park with my kids and I looked at my phone for some reason and this news alert was there and uh, I read the article and I, I thought, you know, no, what, what happened to Robin Williams? And as I read the article, I was as surprised as everybody else about the terrible news of what had happened. You see, it wasn't just that Robin Williams died that was shocking to the world. It was how he died that really shocked everybody. I mean, this man who made so many people laugh, this man who was so talented, this man who seemingly had what we might call a good life, who seemed to be well off, killed himself. You know, a couple nights ago, Rosemary and I, uh, we watched some old episodes of Mork and Mindy. And, uh, you know, what's amazing about that show, and, and we had read about this before we watched the episodes, what's amazing about the show is that Robin Williams would improvise almost all of his lines. So basically, he was so talented and just so funny that, that you know, producers and writers, they would just give him kind of a basic outline. Okay, this is, you know, what we want to happen and he would just make up all his lines right there on the spot, and it would be amazing every time. And Robin Williams, he went on, he became rich and famous, he had a family, he had children, he won awards, but yet in spite of all those things, he was so unhappy that he ended his own life, and that shocked the world because it just doesn't seem to equate, right? It, it doesn't seem to fit with what people tend to think about life. I mean, here's this man who is so well off, right? He, he seems to have the good life, but what was so wrong that he would say, I can't go on anymore. I need to kill myself. He had everything that people in this world are striving to get. Money, recognition, family, friends, success, all the things which people tend to look at and say, that's what makes for a good life. That's somebody who's well off, but yet somehow the man, this man who actually attained those things felt that his life was so terrible that he couldn't bear to go on. And if you've watched how people have reacted to this news, you've probably seen that most people just don't really know what to do with it. It doesn't seem to fit into any you know, category that they know. It does, they don't have a good explanation for it. it. It just doesn't equate how someone who has everything that they want in life could be so terribly depressed. And when we're faced with a situation like that, I mean, there are many things that we think, but one thing that we must think and what we must realize is that uh, we need to reconsider, we need to reevaluate what actually means to have a good life. What actually is our definition of being well off? And that really is what the book of 1 Samuel is all about. Do you know that? 1 Samuel is all about this question, this big, huge question of what is it that makes for a good life? What makes a person truly well off? And in order to probe that question, this book has taken us on a journey like almost no other book of the Bible does. 
It takes us into the hearts and the minds. It takes us below the surface, just facts and events. It takes us into the hearts and the minds and the inner workings of these lives of these individuals in order to show us that we really do need to reevaluate and reconsider what it means to be well off and to have a good life. Because ultimately, the way that you answer that question, the way that you determine what you think makes for a good life, it is going to have a big influence on the way that you live your life, the things that you pursue, the things that you spend time, money, resources on, the things that you uh, seek to attain. And what this book does, right, is it, it continually juxtaposes the lives of different people, right? It holds up for us two different people at a time and says, which of these people has a good life? Which of these two people is well off? Let me, let me give you an example. The book began by showing us two women. Do you remember them? Two women. One of them had children, and one of them desperately wanted to have children, but yet she was unable to conceive. And the question is, which of these women has a good life? Which of them is well off? Now, from the point of view of someone at that time, perhaps even someone today, and without a doubt, in the point of view of these two women themselves, the woman with children, obviously, they would say, well, clearly she has a good life. Clearly she's well off. The woman who does not have children, well, she's not. But the story takes us then below the surface of just the facts. It shows us what's going on in their hearts and their minds, and, and it reveals to us actually that the woman without children, surprisingly, is the one who's actually well off, the one who actually has a good life. You know why? Because she has something that the other woman doesn't have. Then we're introduced to some more people, right? These are young men who serve in the temple together. One of them is a young boy. He lives there far away from his mom and dad and his brothers and sisters. He only gets to see his family one time every year. He doesn't have any other kids to play with. He just has to serve in the temple all the time. And then also at the same time in the temple, there are these other young men. They serve as priests and they party all the time. They party like it's 1999 every single day. They, they use their position to their advantage, right? And they get money, they get food, they have girlfriends, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. According to their religion, they were not supposed to do those things, but they say, we're not going to let that stop us from living, what? The good life. But yet we come to find out in that story that it's the little boy who has something which the partying priests don't have. It's in fact the little boy who is truly well off and has this untangible factor that makes for a good life. But the centerpiece of the book of 1 Samuel is the lives of two men, Saul and David. And the lives of Saul and David are really held up and they're placed side by side for the majority of this book so that we can see how their lives represent two different visions, two different understandings of what it means to be well off and to have a good life. And today here in these final chapters of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that distinction even more clearly than ever before because here in the final section, we are going to see the rise of David and the fall of Saul. That's the title of today's message, by the way, the rise and fall. We'll pick up our story in chapter 30 where we left off last week, starting at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. You remember that the ephod was something which they used to discern and to seek the will of God. He says, bring me the ephod. And David 
inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? He's speaking about this band of Amalekites who had come into their town and burned their houses down and stole all their possessions and all their wives and children. Shall I overtake them? And God answered him and said, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and you shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him. Okay, so David is a man who is given an incredible title in the Bible, one that's not given really to anybody else. He is called the man after God's own heart. And this is because David has this incredible desire to know God and to live his life for God. If you would have asked David this question, this great question, David, what is it that makes for a good life? What does it mean to be well off? You know what his answer would have been? His answer would have been this. He said, the measure of a good life is that you live your life for God, that you have a relationship with God, that you serve God and you live 100% sold out to the will of God for your life. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, whether you live in a palace or a cave, it's all secondary. What matters most is that you live your life for the will of God with 100% of your heart. But yet there were times in David's life where he lost sight of this, right? David's walk with God wasn't just like a rocket ship to glory. It was more like a roller coaster because, you know, he was a real person. So there were times in his life where he lost sight of that vision of what makes for a good life, what really makes a person well off. There were times when David's convictions about living for God were put to the test. And there was a long period of David's life, as we've been reading, in which David did actually end up living in caves. This was... There was a guy trying to kill him. That guy got to live in a palace, even though that guy had been rejected by God. Here's David, chosen by God to be the king of Israel, anointed by God, and he's living in caves, on the run, always in danger, never able to, you know, really sleep well at night, not knowing when the next attack's going to come. And so David's convictions about living for God with his whole heart, they were put to the test. And after many years of this test, of this trial, David simply got tired understandably so but as he got tired he lost sight of that vision that a good life is to be totally committed to doing the will of God for your life and living in the will of God for your life no matter what the cost and David began to say you know what you know what would really be a good life it'd really be a good life to not have somebody trying to kill me every day it'd be a, not you know it'd be a really nice life uh some peace and quiet that's all I want peace and quiet those guys who have peace and quiet I'll tell you what those guys are well off. And so David, with this new view of what makes for a good life, he left Israel, he left the people of God, and he went and lived with the ungodly. For over a year, a year and a half, he lived with the Philistines. It was not a good time in David's life. It was a time characterized by compromise and spiritual decline. But after a year and a half of living with the Philistines, God did something to get David's attention. God allowed David to lose everything to lose everything. God allowed that. David's friends turned their backs on him. This is what we saw in our study last week. His house was robbed and then set on fire, burned to the ground. His wives and his children were kidnapped. He literally had nothing left. Even his closest friends wanted to kill him. He had nowhere left to turn except to God. God was the only thing that David had left. God was the only one that David could turn to, but yet it had been so long, right? He probably figured, I'm, I'm probably going to be on probation if I try to come back to God. It's been so long since I've 
cried out to him. It's been so long since I've prayed. It's been so long since I've sought after him. But David realized, I got nowhere else to go. And so he turned to God, and, and God received him back. There was no probation. I hope you know that for your life as well. If you have gone away from the Lord and you come back, there's no time of probation. God welcomes you with open arms. And so David turns his heart back to God, and, and notice what's the first thing he does. That's where we picked up our story here in chapter 30. He inquires of the Lord. He seeks the Lord. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, where do you want me to go? These are questions that David used to ask all the time, but he hasn't asked them in years. And now here he is asking these questions once again. Lord, what is your will for my life? Lord, what would you have me do? I've tried doing things on my own. I've tried going and living without concern for what you would have me do. And I realize now what a huge mistake that was. Lord, I want to get back in that place of living for you with my whole heart. 100% sold out to your will and your plan for my life. Let me ask you this. Have you gotten to that place in your life where you pray that kind of prayer? Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do, Lord? So many times, you know, we get in the tendency of we make plans and then we say, God, would you please bless my plans? But David here, he's seeking the Lord and he's wanting only to do what God wants him to do. And God speaks to David and tells him, I want you to pursue them. And God gives him a promise. He says, you're going to pursue him and you're going to recover everything that the enemy has taken. And so we read at the beginning of verse 9, here in that section, we read that so David set out. I, I actually love those words, so David set out. Why did he set out? Because God told him to. And so it seems so simple, right? I mean, God told David to do something and David did it. You don't need me to tell you that. You can read that for yourself. But here's why that's so profound. Because this is what obedience to God looks like. God says something and we do it. That's what it means to know Jesus Christ as Lord. This is what it looks like to put your life fully in the hands of God. That you do what he says. You know, a lot of people admire Jesus as a great teacher, as a moral example, as a good role model for your kids. But in order to call yourself a Christian, he has to be your Lord. And, and what that means is that you have to do what he says, right? Uh, when I was younger, a teenager, I, I had a series of conversations with a friend of mine driving back and forth from high school. And these conversations directly led to me giving my life to the Lord. And in one of these conversations, you know, I'll never forget it, this friend of mine told me that she did not consider me to be a Christian. Now, you've got to understand that for me, that was very offensive. I was offended by that because I had grown up considering myself a Christian. I went to Lutheran school until the eighth grade. I, I went through confirmation classes. I got confirmed when I was 13 years old. I believed in God. I believed that the Bible was true. And so I responded to this person and said, who do you think you are to tell me that I'm not a Christian? Her response was, simple and, and very much to the point. Here was her response. She said, well, listen, a Christian, by definition, is somebody who follows Jesus. Now, you may believe in Jesus, but it's a different thing altogether to actually follow Jesus. I mean, to be a Christian means that Jesus Christ is your Lord, and if Jesus is your Lord, that means you don't just agree in theory with what he says. It means you actually do it. You actually live it out in your life. And well, I didn't really have anything to say to that. I think she was absolutely right. And that conversation ended up being pivotal in my life. 
as you look through the words of Jesus, you see that he basically says the same thing. He draws a very clear distinction and line in the sand. You can call yourself a Christian, but only if you call me Lord. And, and you have to ask yourself this question. Is there anything in your life that you are doing because Jesus said to do it? Is there anything, even just one thing, is there something in your life that you are doing because Jesus said to do it? And on the other side, is there anything in your life that you are not doing because Jesus said not to do it? You see, David asked the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do? And God told him what to do, and David set out to do it. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like such a big deal to you, but let me tell you this. It's a huge deal, especially in light of this entire book, and let me tell you why. Do you remember why Saul was rejected as king over Israel? Do you remember? It was this simple fact that Saul refused to obey the Lord. He did not know the Lord as God. This is one of the great differences, as we're saying, that we hold up these two men's lives next to each other. They're meant to be juxtaposed, to played off of each other, compared and contrasted. Here's a great difference between them that really sets them apart. Saul, although he believed in God, although he respected God, Saul did not know God as his Lord. The lives of Saul and David, again, they represent two different views, two different visions of what makes for a good life. David, on the one hand, in, we, in him we see someone who put his life in the hands of God and let God direct his life. In Saul, though, we see someone who took his life in his own hands and tried to create a good life for himself. And we're going to see where both of those leads. Here's David. He's got these 600 men with him, and he's setting out to fight the Amalekites, who are, are several thousand in number. He has a much smaller army. He doesn't know exactly... Uh, where the Amalekites are even at at this point, but he starts going. Why? Because God told him to go. God said, go. He said, all right, I'll just go. And if I go in the wrong direction, please turn me around or something, you know? It, it's this heart of obedience which sets David apart from Saul. And ultimately, obedience, you know, if you think about it, it it's, we have to go beyond just saying obey or disobey. You've got to get to the reason of why someone, what's going on that someone would say, I don't want to obey God. I really believe that at the root of it is the question of trusting God and really believing God's intentions towards you. I mean, why is it that Saul did not obey God? Why is it that you and I sometimes don't obey God? I, I think, as I look at Saul's life, that Saul did not obey God because Saul didn't honestly believe that obeying God would lead to his greatest happiness. He thinks that doing things his way, following his own path, is what will lead to his greatest happiness. Now, we all know that he is mistaken, but I believe many times it comes down to a similar issue with us. You know, obedience has become somewhat of a bad word, really taboo word or concept in our culture. We tend not to like it because it feels authoritative, it feels controlling. And, uh, and I believe a lot of times that's because uh, in our settings, obedience is often motivated by fear. But what we need to see is that with God, obedience is rooted in his love for you and trusting in him. At the heart of obedience to God is the issue of truly trusting that God loves you, that he knows everything, that he knows more than you do, and that he actually has your best interest in mind. David is a man who has come to know, even more so through his failures, that God loves him. 
that God is faithful to him and that he can trust God completely, that God truly has his best interest in mind and that doing what God tells him to do is really going to be the path to his greatest happiness. You and I, though, we, we have something that David didn't have. We have something even greater. We have a greater reason to trust God, to know that God loves us, and therefore to obey God. David had the grace of God in his life. He had the faithfulness of God in his life, but we have something that goes beyond any shadow of a doubt. We have the cross of Jesus Christ, that ultimate symbol that stands forever to show us how much God loves us. You know, the message of the gospel is this, that you are so flawed that God had to die for you. It was the only way you could be saved. You're so flawed that God had to die for you, but you are so loved by God that he was glad to die for you. You see, that's the gospel. He had to die for you, but he loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. And it's in light of the cross that we can walk in obedience to God, knowing without a doubt that we can trust him because he loves us and he wants what is best for us. So David sets out in obedience to God's word to him, once again trusting that God's way, no matter where it might lead him, it is the absolute best way for him. And he's got these 600 men with him. Now let me remind you that just a few moments ago, these 600 men are the same 600 men who picked up stones to throw at him until he was dead, right? They wanted to kill him just a little bit ago. And here they are once again following him off into battle. How did that happen? Well, I have to say that I believe that this change in these men's hearts was inspired by the change that they saw in David's heart. This this sign of repentance in David's heart, this sign of turning back to the Lord and being full of faith. When everybody turned against him, it caused David to turn back to the Lord and start praying again and start asking again what God would have him do. And you can just imagine David, he went in you know, to see the priest and he, and he comes out from meeting with the priest and, and seeking the Lord and he, he sees these men just with fire in their eyes ready to stone him to death and he says, guys, listen, well, well first of all, Please put down the rocks. And, and second of all, guys, I have not been in a good place with the Lord. But today, I got a wake-up call. It's, it's one that I've been needing for a while, guys, and I've been praying again. I've been seeking the Lord again, and God has given me a promise. He's going to give me back everything that the enemy took away. So guys, I'm going you don't have to come with me. I believe God's promise. If it's just me against 2,000 uh, Amalekites, I believe that God's promise is true. I am done trying to create a good life for myself apart from God. The only truly good life for me is one lived for God in the center of his will for my life. So if you're with me, you're with me. If you're not, you're not, but I'm going. And we see that these 600 men, they drop their stones, they pick up their swords, and they say, Let's go, right? How could anyone not follow a leader with that much faith, with that much conviction? David's rekindled faith, it inspires these men, and they can't help but follow him. David is on a mission from God. And so off they go, fired up, 600 men walking through the desert. But look at what happens next. It says, the 600 men who were with him when they came to the brook Besor were those who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, for they were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Here's what happens. They're going 600 men, and they get to this brook, probably one of the only sources of fresh water there in the desert. 
And as much as these men are full of faith, they're also completely exhausted. I mean, think about this, if you will. On this day, they had already traveled 25 miles. The day before this, they also traveled 25 miles. And the day before that, they also walked 25 miles. Now they've come another 10, 15 miles to the Brook Besor. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired just thinking about it. I think I need to take a nap. So they come to this creek, and these men are so tired. And 200 of them say, we just can't go on anymore. Literally cannot pick ourselves up to take another step. Now this is quite a setback because they're facing thousands of Amalekites and now they've just gone from 600 men to 400 men. But David's convinced that God can save by many or by few and he says, I don't care if there's 400 of us, we're going. We're going to obey the Lord. We've had enough of of doing things our way. We're going to just trust God and walk in faith. So check out what happens in in the next section. Yet again, another distraction. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. You know, just from a clearly uh, clinical point of view, you have to say, like, what, what is this here, right? There's some guy in the desert. Just give him some water, throw him some supplies, and be on your way already. I mean, you don't have time to stop 400 men. The Amalekites are getting away. They've got your wives. They've got your children. Just, you can't stop everybody to take care of this one poor guy. Give him some stuff and be on your way. But instead of doing that, we see that David shows this unexpected kindness to this man, this incredible compassion and concern, especially considering the circumstances. They're in a hurry, right? Tick tock. But they decide to stop to take care of a stranger. David deals with this man himself. He cares for him. He speaks with him. It's really unexpected kindness. And check out what happens as he does that. Verse 13, David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, Remember those guys? Servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me and behind, me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. That's David's town. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Turns out this guy who they found laying in the desert, thirsty and hungry, he's one of the guys who set their town on fire just a few days ago. And now because David has stopped to show unexpected kindness to a stranger who's in need, now this guy is going to lead them to the Amalekites. It's incredible. Verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. 
Not only did David recover that which had been taken away by the Amalekites, but he got back even more than he ever lost. And what a wonderful picture this is of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. What a picture this is of the gospel. That through Jesus Christ, through his victory on the cross, not only does God restore to us all that has been lost by sin, all that has been taken by the enemy, uh, he, he not only gives us back that which has been stolen and, and robbed of us through sin and the enemy, but he gives us abundantly more. Not only does he save our souls, not only does he restore us to fellowship with God, but he gives us spoils along with it. Not only does he redeem us and justify us, but he goes beyond that and he glorifies us, the word says. Not only does he save our souls for eternity, but he gives us life and joy and peace and healing and direction by his spirit here and now. Above and beyond, that's the way the Lord works. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. You can imagine they get back to camp, you know, back to Brook Besor where these men have been, you know, dipping their feet in the water and taking it easy and relaxing while the other men have been out putting their necks on the line to get their wives and children and their stuff back. And they get back and there's some men who say, you know what, you can have your wife back, you can have your kids back, but I'm keeping everything else. You know, you can imagine he's riding around on his camel, he's got a couple like toasters, there's a microwave oven, a laptop hanging off, and people are like, hey, hey, thanks for bringing my laptop back in my microwave. He says, well, listen, bud, you can have your wife, but I'm keeping the microwave because you stayed back and didn't help. So verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays back by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. David and his men, they return and, and you know, you can imagine why some of them would say this. They're, they're loaded down with all this stuff. They're bringing everything back. And, and there's these guys here who, well, yeah, they watched the stuff and they really did lighten the load for the 400 who went, but, but they weren't out there fighting. They weren't out there risking their lives to get this stuff back. And they say, you know what? They don't deserve any of this. But David comes and he says, no way. These guys who stayed behind, they get just as much of the spoil. They get just as much of a, as a of a part in this victory as the guys who fought on the front lines. And actually, you know what David quotes here, this is something which is in the law of Moses. In Numbers 31 verse 27, the law of Moses specifically spoke to this kind of situation. And it said, divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. So those who went out and those who stayed behind, they were to get an equal share of the reward. And you know, in any work of God, it is true that some are called to go and some are called to send. Some are called to be out front and center and some are called to keep the supply lines, to hold down the fort, to watch the stuff, to enable those who are called to go, to go by praying for them faithfully and 
supporting them financially, among other things. This is certainly true, for example, in the area of missions. You know, during the years that my wife and I served as missionaries in Hungary, we were out there doing work, but that work would not have been possible if there were not even more people than just us who stayed behind and who financially supported us, who supported us in prayer, who supported us with care. And sometimes, uh, you know, people would say stuff to us like, oh man, you know, uh, I wish I could serve the Lord like you do, but I just live in America, and I, I work a nine-to-five job, and I have 2.3 children and a dog in a minivan, and I'm just not out there serving the Lord on the front lines like you are. And we would always say, no, you are totally seeing it wrong. You need to look at these verses, right? And you need to be reminded that you who stay behind and make it possible for us to be over there in the first place, you're just as much a part of that work and you get just as much of, an, of a reward. And let me tell you what, that's not just true in foreign missions, that's just an example, but it's true wherever the work of God is taking place. It's true in our church. You know that we have people who, who work behind the scenes making things possible. It wouldn't be possible without them. We have people who come before church and they pray. They pray for you. They prayed for you this morning. They're praying for you right now. And they're lifting up the needs of our body at home. They're giving. We have people who give tithes and offerings. We have people who set up and tear down. And it is so important to know that both those who are out front and center and those unseen servants serving in the background, they're both equally a part of that work of God and they're vitally important to the work of God. So now the scene shifts. Now from looking at David, this man who's saying, I haven't been putting my life in God's hands, but now I'm going to. I'm turning back to the Lord. I'm putting my life back in his hands. And the scene shifts to our other man here, Saul. And we read this in chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. We have been anticipating this great battle between the Philistines and the Israelites for quite some time now, uh, and now it happens, and we see that it's an absolutely crushing defeat by the Philistines. The fact that these bodies lay on Mount Gilboa, it tells us just how crushing that defeat was, because you see, usually they would camp on hills, and they would come to fight in a valley. And if they're up on the hill dead, you know what that means? It means that they've overcome them. They, they've got the Israelites in full retreat, running back to camp, and they're just slaughtering them. And we see Jonathan, is so tragic, Jonathan, the son of Saul, along with Saul's other sons. The, these were the generals of the army. They're all dead. In verse 3 we read, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. It's a tragic end to a tragic life. Saul's life comes to an end 
You know, Saul had been told, interestingly, going into this battle we saw back a few chapters ago, Saul was warned ahead of time that in this battle he's going to die. We have no way of knowing whether or not Saul took heed to that, that warning and prepared himself to meet the Lord as God, prepared himself to stand before God as we all will one day. I certainly hope that Saul did. But here, Saul's life ends in a way that is very fitting, isn't it? I mean, isn't this really fitting to how Saul dies? He dies in the same way that he lived, taking his life in his own hands. He doesn't die in a noble or heroic way. He doesn't die trusting the Lord to the end. No, he dies by his own sword, by his own hand. And as Saul is struck down, the Philistines are victorious, the people of Israel scatter. It's the tragic end to a tragic life. And this brings us to the question which we began with, and that is this. What makes for a good life? Here we are at the end of Saul's life, and we're able to look back and ask that question. Was that a good life? Was Saul well off? One day, each of us is going to come to the end of our lives. And as we stand there later, looking back on our lives, we will ask the question, did I live a good life? Was, that tr- was I truly well off? And so the question is for us now, who are not yet at that place, to say, well, what are those things that I should be pursuing so that one day I will be able to look back and say, I had one life to live and I spent it very well. Saul had everything that this world has to offer. He was accomplished. He was good looking. He had wealth. He lived in a palace. He had a family. He had power. And here he dies fighting for his country. A lot of people would look at that and say, that sounds like a pretty good life. It seems that he was well off. But yet Saul, we know this about him, that he was miserable. And the book of 1 Samuel makes it clear to us that Saul's life was not a good life. And we can be sure of that because we know what was happening throughout his life in his heart. And so here in this final section of the book, David and Saul are held up for us side by side one last time. And they do what each of them has for each of them, this is what has become characteristic of their lives. David puts his life fully in the hands of God, and Saul takes his life in his own hands. David rises, and Saul falls. And here the central message of this book is made clear more than ever before, right at the end. If you truly want a good life, there's one way to do it, by placing your life firmly in the hands of God and saying, not my will, but your will be done. David died to himself. He puts his life fully in God's hands. As a result, he finds true life. Saul tried to save his life. He took his life in his own hands, and as a result, he lost his life. And let me ask you today, where is your life at? Is it in God's hands, or is it in your own hands? Let me tell you what, it's not too late for you to do what David did here in this section, and choose today to put your life firmly back in God's hands. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the famous German theologian, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, we read this. Speaking of Jesus, and calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. Now think about this. This is Jesus' 
big invitation to the crowd, right? It says that he's calling the crowd to come to him, right? This is Jesus' altar call. He's coming, calling people to come forward and commit their life to him. And what does he say? What's his big message? What's his big call to action? Come and die. Come to me and die, right? But you have to understand that the call to die, Jesus says, is ultimately the call to find true life, full life and real life. Jesus Christ, he put his life fully in God's hands for you. Do you know that? Jesus Christ put his life fully in God's hands for you so that by doing the will of the Father, you could have new life, so that he could, he could take hold of that for you. And in order to take hold of that new life, which he has purchased for you on the cross, you have to give up your life. You have to place it fully in God's hands. That is the way to find true life. That is the way to walk every day in newness of life by continually returning to the cross where God's love for you was shown beyond the shadow of any doubt and laying down your life before God and saying, God, I thank you for what you have done for me. I am yours. Now what would you have me do? How many of you will come to him today and lay down your lives before him so that you might truly live? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this example of this great man, David. And Lord, might we see the contrast that you're wanting us to see between the life lived by David and the life lived by Saul, the, the way that David's life ended compared to the way that Saul's life ended, Lord. And we, we just want to say, Lord, we want to be people after your own heart. Lord, make us people like David, people who live for you from our whole hearts, who, people who know you as Lord, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has, maybe they respect you, maybe they believe in you, maybe they have a level of, of respect and regard for you, but Lord, they do not know you as Lord. You are not the one who leads and directs their lives and their steps. Lord, I pray that they would not leave this place today without coming to know you and making that decision in their heart to lay down their life before you so that they might truly live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.